So a few weeks ago, I did a bit of a social experiment. I actually did it here at church on Sunday morning. Uh, When I was getting ready for church in the morning, I saw my purple dress shirt hanging in the closet. And uh, I thought, I'm going to wear that shirt today. First of all, it was the only one that didn't need to be ironed. So that made the choice pretty easy. But I thought to myself as I put on that purple shirt, I wonder how many people today are going to comment on this purple shirt. And sure enough, nearly 10 people throughout the course of the morning came up to me and said, hey, nice purple shirt, or hey, it's a bold choice. Hey, that's a purple shirt. One person, though, knew a little bit more of the history. When I was youth pastor here, I got to preach about three or four times a year, and I would usually dress up a little more than I would on a regular Sunday. So I'd put on my dress pants and a collared shirt, maybe even a tie. And as soon as people saw me in the morning, they'd be like, hey, you're preaching today, aren't you? Because you're wearing your tie. And this purple dress shirt was one of them. And so one of my former students came up to me and said, hey, it's the purple preaching shirt. You must be preaching today. And uh, he was absolutely right. Sometimes we can tell who people are and what they do by what they wear. And we introduced this idea last week, Bobby did, by talking about different kinds of uniforms that we might wear throughout the course of our lives or that other people might wear. And we recognize people based on what it is that they wear. Uh, I really don't like clothes shopping very much, but uh, when my wife and I go clothes shopping, sometimes we'll play this game where we'll see a a shirt hanging on the rack and we'll look at each other and say, who do we know that would wear that shirt? So a few years ago, we were in a certain store and I saw a shirt and someone immediately came to mind. And I said to Jenny, who do we know that would wear that shirt? And without skipping a beat, she said, Pastor Dave would wear that shirt. And I thought, yes, that's exactly who I was thinking of. And so I went to Dave a few days later. I said, this is the game we played in this certain store. And we thought of you. And he said, well, that's where I buy my clothes. Or actually, he said, that's where Courtney buys my clothes for me. And so we were right. We recognized the clothes uh, and the person who would wear them. Paul is using this same kind of analogy of clothing in Ephesians chapter 4 to say to us that when a person puts their faith in Christ, it's like they put on a new set of clothes. And there's a a positional reality when someone puts their faith in Christ. The old self is gone and the new has come. Paul writes it that way in, in 1 Corinthians. But Paul's also telling us that when you make that choice, it's imperative, it's incumbent upon you then to take on certain kinds of attitudes and behaviors. So it's almost like the attitudes and behaviors of the old self, which Paul has already described in Ephesians 4, we take those off as if we're taking off dirty clothes And we put on these new deeds that are fitting for a follower of Jesus. Now, we've been talking a lot about unity in Ephesians chapter 4 because it's one of Paul's primary concerns here. And so what we learn as we continue our study here and actually finish Ephesians 4 today is we learn this. Unifying behavior is motivated by what Christ has done for us. Unifying behavior is motivated by by what Christ has done for us. And in the verses we study today, Paul's going to talk about what those unifying behaviors are. So in the previous section, he talked about what this new self is like. And he said in verse 24, the new self is created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. And now he's going to get super practical about what that new self should look like. So he says, starting in verse 25, therefore, because you have this new self on, Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. 
Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, there's a lot of rapid-fire instruction there, so let's, let's break it down. There's actually four tests that Paul gives to us in the first five verses, tw- verses 25 to 30. Four tests, and we're going to present these one at a time, and I'm going to ask, actually ask you to take the test. So, how well are you doing at this particular test? And we'll, we'll give you some tools for that. So the first test that Paul identifies is lying versus truthfulness. He says in verse 25, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now, in each of these four tests, Paul gives us a negative command. Don't do this. Then he gives us a positive counter to that. And then he gives us a reason why we would want to follow that command. So in this one, the the thing to put off is lying, speaking falsehood. Uh, In fact, the Greek language here actually suggests to us the idea of having put off the lie, speak the truth. So there's a more general way and then a very specific way Paul is intending us to think about this. The general way is when we put off the lie is a reference to when we put our faith in Christ. Now remember, as we've seen the idea of truth a few times in Ephesians 4, we've reminded ourselves that Jesus himself is the truth. He, is, he declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. So the ultimate representation and embodiment of truth is found in Christ. So when we're pursuing Christ, before we're looking for true facts and what is right and what is wrong, we're looking at the person of Jesus Christ, getting to know him in relationship, obeying him. This is how we come to know the ultimate truth, capital T truth, which is Jesus. So Paul is saying we've put off the lie. That means that when you've put your faith in Christ, you have put off everything that is, that is untrue, the life that is based on falsehood. So we've put that off and now we're speaking the truth to one another. This reminds us of Paul's command back in verse 15, that we're to speak the truth to one another in love. We're to remind ourselves of the truths about Jesus. to to speak to each other, to read scripture to one another, to sing to each other. And in so doing, we remind ourselves of the capital T truth, Jesus. We, We grow in our faith that way. But then very specifically, Paul here is talking about speaking things that are true, is not lying to one another. And he's actually quoting Uh, an Old Testament prophet here. He's he's quoting the book of Zechariah in chapter 8. In chapter 8 of Zechariah, there's this vision of God coming to dwell with his people in the city of Jerusalem, and people from all nations are flocking to this place. And this is what Zechariah records there, starting in verse 14. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty. So now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and to Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all of this, declares the Lord. Whenever the Lord says he hates something, that's something we should pay attention to. 
And it's not any surprise, really, that lying is something that God hates. Jesus is talking about the devil in John chapter 8, and this is how he describes the devil in John chapter 8, verse 44. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This tells us that when we participate in telling lies, we're actually participating in the nature of the devil, not the nature of God. And is that something we really want to do? No, we we want to pursue Christ who is the truth. And one of the ways we do that is by telling the truth. And yet we're prone to lying, to exaggerating, to not telling all of the truth, to misleading people to make ourselves look better. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why we might do this. We might want to, maybe we're too concerned about our self-image. And so we want people to think we're better than we actually are. Maybe we're trying to self-promote Maybe we're just trying to look better than everyone else. My kids are in elementary school, so it reminds me of my own days in elementary school and how kids would come and tell you something about their family or about how much stuff they have or whatever. Sometimes my son will come home and says, my friend says that they have this at their house. And I know that that's obviously an exaggeration and not true, but my son doesn't know that. And I know that his friend is just trying to look really good compared to his friends. And so he's exaggerating. He's lying about who he is and what they actually have. We do this as adults just in maybe slightly more sophisticated kind of ways because we want to look a certain way or we want to look better than we actually are. So one way in which we actually tell the truth when we speak the truth to one another is by confessing sin. It's by bringing what is in the darkness out into the light. John makes this point in 1 John, and catch the connection here between telling the truth and walking in the light uh, and, and walking with God. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So you can see there's a connection here between telling the truth and living in the truth, living in the light and confessing our sin. I was challenged a week or so ago by a pastor, John Mark Comer, is also an author, who said this, you can confess your sins privately to God in prayer all you want, and that's a good thing, but if you have never confessed your sin to another person, you have not done the full work of confession yet. And I think John here aligns with that because he says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. Fellowship with whom? We would think that we have fellowship with God when we're walking in the light, but actually John says we have fellowship with one another when we're walking in the light, when we're pursuing the truth, when we're confessing our sin. So one way in which we pursue Jesus who is the truth is is by confessing our sin one to another. Find a trusted person that you know who you can be totally open and honest with, that you don't have to have any secrets with so that you can confess your sin one to another. Now, Paul gives us a reason back in Ephesians 4 why we would want to do this. It's interesting. Paul could have said, by the way, you're going to want to tell the truth because it's one of the Ten Commandments. Or you'll want to tell the truth because it's in the character of God to tell the truth. But instead, he appeals to community. He says, we are all members of one body. 
We belong to one another. In fact, in the original Greek, the word body isn't even there. It's we are all members of one another. I belong to you and you belong to me. We're in this family of God together. And lying to one another damages the community, the unity that we could experience if we were truthful with one another. So the first test is lying versus truthfulness. Now we've got this continuum below of emojis, and I want you to imagine you had your own little emoji person to put on the continuum. Where would you put yourself between doing really good and doing really bad? And how could you grow? How could you take a step in the right direction? So that's the first test, lying versus truthfulness. The second one is this, uncontrolled anger versus controlled anger. Let me ask you this question. When's the last time you were angry? Was it when you were driving, maybe even to church or to work or wherever it is that you might have been going? Maybe it was at work, another coworker is not pulling his or her weight. Maybe it was at home, you're mad with your spouse or angry at your child who's not doing the thing that you want them to do. We, we get angry, don't we? Maybe it was when you were scrolling on social media this week or checking the news. Let me ask you this, how productive was your anger? What kind of good thing did it produce? Probably nothing, right? A- anger is, is generally not a productive kind of thing. Usually it's a damaging thing. Now, Paul allows here that there is such a thing as righteous anger. In fact, the, the, the Greek literally reads, be angry, but do not sin. And so some commentators actually read this as a charge to us to be angry about the things God is angry about and saying we actually should be angry more in a righteous kind of way. So when you hear about the way that indigenous children were treated in residential schools, or when you hear about the millions of people today who are in slavery or forced into sex trafficking, including children, if that makes you angry, that's a righteous kind of anger. At least it can be a righteous kind of anger if it leads you to do something productive about it. But I'd suggest to us the anger that you and I experience most often is not righteous anger, Instead, it can very easily be self-righteous anger. (laughs) Uh, Anger is something that that we're continually warned to be careful about. In fact, James says it this way in James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And so we need to be careful with anger, even though all of us are prone to be angry at certain times. We often feel angry self-righteously rather than with a godly kind of righteousness. I'll give you two examples. Uh, This came up at our care group the other night, and I had just done it the previous day, and so uh, it was fresh. Now, um, I guess I have a few pet peeves on the road because I've confessed a few of them to you. This is one of them. On Fraser Highway, which I drive a lot because of where I work and where I live, the speed limit in a lot of sections is 80 kilometers an hour. But some people drive the road not knowing that, thinking the speed limit is 60 kilometers an hour. And so there I am, sitting there with my wife, driving behind someone who is going 60 kilometers an hour. And it doesn't matter how closely I tailgate this person or how much I kind of peek around them to try and give them the hint that they need to speed up a little bit. They don't change their behavior. They keep going 60 kilometers an hour straight. 
but I feel self-righteously angry. Now, anger for me doesn't come out in like hand gestures and yelling at them or anything, but there's this feeling inside of me that is building. And I just want them to speed up. And I feel, I feel justified in my anger because the speed limit is 80 kilometers after all. They're doing it wrong. And if only they would do it right, I would be happy. We would all be happy. But I feel justified in my anger at them at going so slowly on this road, even though my anger is not producing anything of value in my life. Second example, I got angry when scrolling through social media last week. I saw someone posted something about COVID. And um, it's not that I totally disagreed with the position being presented. I didn't totally agree with it either. But what made me angry was how badly it mischaracterized the other side of the argument. It made it sound like this position was so self-evidently obvious and this position was so idiotically wrong. And I know people who feel this way, just like I know people who feel this way, and I know that these people aren't idiots. They have a good reason to think the way that they think. And so it made me angry that it mischaracterized. In fact, I was getting so worked up, I nearly sent this person a message to be like, what's up with this? But I know that acting in the moment of anger is never a good idea. And so I was able to step back from that and, and try to deal with that internally. Because again, I felt self-righteous in my anger. If only they saw it the way that I saw it, then we would all be getting along. Well, that's an arrogant position to take, isn't it? And so this anger was not producing anything in me. So what is your anger producing? Or let me ask you a different question. I'm, I'm stealing this question from Pastor Craig, Craig Rochelle, who preached on anger recently. He said, when you're angry, do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? Because if all you want to do is make a point, then just carry on and let your anger play itself out. But if you want to make a difference, then you probably are going to need to take a step back and ask what love might require of you in this kind of situation. How you might act differently to bring something positive out of the situation rather than let your anger run unchecked. Do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? Now, Paul says you need to deal with anger quickly. He actually says before the sun goes down, you need to deal with anger, which I think we need to understand figuratively but seriously. I don't think Paul literally means if you find yourself angry and it's 11.50 p.m. before midnight, you need to make sure you've dealt with that anger. No, I think he's saying that anger left unchecked will cause all kinds of problems in your life, and so you need to deal with it soon, as soon as you can. And so if you're angry with your spouse, sometimes you need to say, I know we don't have time to talk about it right now, but can we talk about it once the kids go to bed or tomorrow morning or after work? When can we deal with this? Or if you're angry with a friend, you need to deal with that before it, 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 it grows down and grows roots in your heart and in your soul and causes this resentment and bitterness to grow in your life and cause division. Now, Paul even ups the stakes here and says, if you don't do this, you're actually giving the devil a foothold in your life. Now, the Greek word here is tapos, a place to stand. You are giving the devil, perhaps through the work of his demons, to have influence in your life because of your anger, your uncontrolled anger. Uh, it's, it's kind of like the story of the Trojan horse. Have you heard this story before? Um, the, the, the myth goes like this, that the Greeks are at war with the city of Troy, 
and there'd been this 10-year siege and things just weren't working. And so they decided to build this giant wooden horse and present it as a gift to the inhabitants of the city. And so they built this thing and they put some of their soldiers inside and they left it at the city gate and all of their ships turned around and left. And the residents of the city of Troy thought, oh, wow, this is wonderful. We've won. And so they opened the city gates. They pulled the horse inside. They closed the gates. But under the cover of night, all of those ships who had left came back. And once darkness fell, all the soldiers inside that horse got out of the horse, opened the city gates, and let the rest of the army in, and the Greeks took over. Anger is that kind of vehicle into your life. It allows the enemy a place to be within your heart and within your soul. So this should be reason enough for us to deal with our anger. And so if you find yourself consistently dealing with anger in an ongoing way, you need to remind yourself of the damage that can be done by the enemy gaining access into your life. So that's the the second test that Paul presents, uncontrolled anger versus controlled anger. Again, we've got this continuum on the screen. uh, Put your little person wherever you think that you fall on this test. How are you doing? with anger. The third test, and the fourth one we'll go through fairly quickly, but the third is this, stealing versus hard work. Uh, Paul says this, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they might have something to share with those in need. So apparently stealing was fairly common among first century Christians. Uh, it, it's something that they did from time to time, and stealing something that happens now, right? You've probably if you've lived long enough, had something stolen from you. I remember as a young adult having the, the perfect evening planned. I had a softball game in the early evening and I had my hockey equipment in my car because I had a roller hockey game afterwards. It was great, two sports in one evening. But as I walked off of the softball field towards my 1991 Honda Civic Si, my hatch on the back of the hatchback was open and I thought to myself, I didn't leave that open. And someone had broken into my car and stolen all of my hockey equipment. It was a terrible feeling. You've probably had the similar kind of experience where someone has taken something from you. So stealing of property and, and goods is one thing, but we also can steal by stealing other people's ideas, stealing their thoughts, stealing credit. We can actually steal time and money from our employers by not putting in a hard day's work. Paul actually wants us to understand here and and also in Thessalonians that hard work is a Christian distinctive. Hard work is a Christian distinctive. People should look at Christians and think, wow, those guys work hard. So he writes this, Paul writes this in 2 Thessalonians 3 about people who weren't working hard. He says, we hear some of you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. So Paul is saying that people who are just lazy, who aren't applying themselves to anything, whether it's a a paid job or or not, are actually prone to get in all kinds of trouble. And in Timothy, he writes that that people who aren't busy, they, they, they latch on to all kinds of myths and conspiracy theories, and they're constantly looking for for different things that aren't true and, and attaching themselves to ideas that are actually destructive to the community. And so Paul says, instead of being lazy, you ought to work hard. Um, the, the, the reason why that Paul gives us here is not actually so that you can have a lot in your bank account so you can buy the thing that you want or so that you can retire early. 
It's actually so that you can share with those in need. Work hard so you can put food on your own table and so that you can share with those who aren't as fortunate as you. That's the motivation. It reminds us a lot of the early church. I mean, this is how they did things. They, they constantly were sharing the things that they had. In fact, a second century or third century uh, theologian named Tertullian wrote this. He said, one in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us, but our wives. <laughs> so, so everything except that most sacred relationship we share with one another in, in the family of God. So the third test is stealing versus hard work. So again, here's your continuum. Put your little emoji person on it. Where would you rank yourself? How would you grade yourself in this test? The fourth test is this. Filthy talk versus edifying talk. Edifying means to build up. So filthy talk versus talk that builds other people up. This is how Paul writes it. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When's the last time you said something that wasn't helpful to someone else? Probably most of us don't have to think back that far. The word Paul uses here for unwholesome talk is actually rotten. It's like rotten fruit. That's the kind of talk that he's describing. And if you were to try and eat rotten fruit, you probably would trigger your gag reflex, right? Like nobody wants to put rotten fruit into their mouths and try and swallow it. Like we, we just try and reject it. Our bodies automatically try and reject it. That's the point Paul's making, that this kind of filthy and unhelpful talk should trigger a kind of spiritual gag reflex in us. And we should just be spitting that kind of talk out, not using it. Because it's so, it tastes so bad in our mouths that we would talk that way. I firmly believe, and I, I found this to be true, especially when I was playing hockey in a decidedly non-Christian environment, and I think it's true if you work or go to school in a non-Christian environment, I firmly believe that the way that you speak is one of the best witnessing tools that you have. Because if you've been in one of those non-Christian environments, you know that filthy talk can be pervasive. Like, it's actually amazing how many different ways that swear words can be inserted into the English language. They serve all kinds of grammatical functions for some people. It's in every sentence. And if you are in an environment where people are speaking like that and you are not speaking like that, that sets you apart as different. And isn't that what we want to be as Christ followers? We want to be known for the way that Christ has made a difference in our lives. And one of those ways is in the ways that we speak. And so when we're not engaging with kind of crude language and when we're not engaging with gossip and talking about other people who aren't present and sharing secrets that we shouldn't be sharing and talking negatively about people who aren't present in the room, when we don't join into that, that sets us apart. Uh, Colossians, uh, Paul writes it this way in Colossians uh, chapter 4. Uh, he writes, starting in verse 5, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. See how Paul connects witness and the way that you speak. Now, what's the reason for this? What's the why that Paul gives us for 
being paying attention to how we speak? Well, there's, there's two possible answers in the way this is written. One is that it might benefit those who listen, that everything we say might have a benefit to those who hear it. The second reason might be in the next verse, which says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So by speaking in a pure way, we're actually pleasing the Spirit of God rather than grieving Him by speaking in an impure kind of way. But this idea of grieving the Spirit of God probably applies to all four tests, but certainly does to the last one. So filthy talk versus edifying talk. How are you doing on this test? How would you grade yourself here? Now, to, to quickly wrap up the rest of this passage, we, we need to pay attention here to this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit, which should cause us to stop in our tracks. Right? The idea that we can actually grieve the Holy Spirit of God by our behavior should, should stop us. Now, it, it's kind of good news, but it's also bad news. The good news is that when we fail at all of these things, God doesn't just run away. But the bad news is that he's actually grieved by it. I remember one time, uh, Jenny and I were going to go to a movie. We were trying to decide what to see. And I suggested this one movie. I, I, I don't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but it was about a, a five-year-old boy who lost his parents and was lost in the world and was trying to find his way to find his parents. And I said, maybe we should see this one. And Jenny said, oh, that's going to be way too sad. We had a five-year-old son at the time. She said, no, I don't, I don't want to see it. So I watched the trailer. I was like, maybe I can convince her that it won't be that sad. And I did. We went to that movie. And as we sat there and she was crying beside me, her mother's heart breaking and thinking about what if that was our own child, I felt so awful inside. Like, I have grieved my wife by this action that I knew I shouldn't have taken, but I did anyways. You know, th this is the kind of dynamic that can happen with the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, we ought to feel that grief ourselves. Francis Chan writes it this way, If the Spirit is grieved and the Spirit dwells in me, I would be feeling that grief. You can't separate it and say, Well, the Spirit is grieved, but I'm fine. I have thicker skin. There's a serious problem if the Spirit is grieving our divisions, and yet we feel fine about it. So a pretty strong warning. We, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be like the Israelites that, who are described in Psalm 78, verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again, they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. Are your actions grieving the Holy Spirit who lives inside you? So then verse 31, Paul says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, um, and, brawl and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now notice there's an inward to an outward dimension of this. Bitterness, rage, and anger can be felt internally and then expressed externally. Brawling and slander in every form of malice is actually external kind of behaviors. So be careful what's happening inside of you because it will manifest on the outside. And when we feel these kinds of things, we will not experience community. We will not experience unity with one another. Uh, Lance Morrow wrote a, a review in the New York Times of a book called uh, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from a Culture of Contempt. And he writes that the author argues that contempt is a powerful combination of two primal human emotions, anger and disgust. When we feel contempt for someone, there's no longer an effort to debate, convince, or even tolerate them. We have lost the common ground needed for reasonable disagreement. Instead, there's only posturing, outmaneuvering, and defeat. 
What we are left with is the presumption that the motives of my group are noble and true, and the motive of yours are repugnant and false. And when that's the kind of attitude we have within community, we will not experience the unity that Jesus offers to us. Instead, Paul says in verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Again, an inward to an outward kind of thing. The word for kind and compassionate here is actually a word that's used in Greek to refer to a healthy bowel or healthy intestines. You know how you feel when you eat too much, right? And, and, and you just feel so bloated and cramped and you don't want to move and you might feel like throwing up. Well, the opposite of that is a good feeling. Everything's moving as it should, right? It's a good internal feeling. This is the word that Paul uses for compassion, that compassion for one another ought to come from a deep place within us and express itself then in action. And sometimes that action is forgiving one another. The, the, the big reason why then is found in, in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 where Paul writes that our motivation for all of this, everything that he's just said, is because of the love that Christ has for us. Why should we forgive? Well, because Christ forgive, forgave us first. We ought to be imitators of God. And how do we imitate God? We imitate God by loving others. We remember that, that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When's the last time you stopped to be just amazed at that? That the God of the universe, the perfect and holy and righteous one, stepped in on your behalf, stepped in on my behalf when we were filthy and disgusting and deserved nothing and actually put himself on the cross on your behalf and rose again so that you might be able to put on this new self, to put on this new outfit, which resembles Jesus. So that when people might look at you, they might see the, the good things that you are doing, and they might praise your Father in heaven. They might see Christ in you. Isn't that amazing? Because if we truly got that, if we were truly humbled by that, if we truly were in awe of what Christ has done, these things would be things we really want to do. And we would give ourselves to the Holy Spirit who will empower us to do it. So two questions then as we end today. The first one is this, what test, which of these four tests do you need to improve on? And how are you going to do so? And then secondly, how can you stop this week to marvel at God's goodness to you? To be in awe of him. To gain the motivation to put on the right outfit. Friends, I hope that you found our study of Ephesians 4 to be richly rewarding. I know I have. We've we're got one more week left in the series. We're actually going to move to Matthew chapter 16 and look at a passage there. But let us be reminded again of the unity that Christ has won for us, even in these trying times, even in all of the polarization in this world. The unity of the church is both, both an established fact and something that we are to, to work on. So let's, let's put our hands to the work. Let's lean into everything that needs to be done, even if it's uncomfortable and awkward, to pursue the unity that Christ has already achieved for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of you today. We are humbled by 
the ways in which you have loved us so well. And out of our gratitude, Father, we are motivated to follow your commands and to follow you to obedience. So would you strengthen us to the work that you have given to us? May we be united in common mission and common purpose. May you, by your Spirit, enable us to be more successful at passing these tests that have been put in front of us today. And may others come to know you because of how it is that we love. Amen.